This is the Collective Evolution Show. I'm Joe Martino. Welcome back to another episode here. Currently in a little bit of a makeshift setup since we just moved out of our office uh, and into a new space. And now we're kind of just figuring out uh, what the set is going to look like. So it's kind of a little bit of an awkward spot, but um, that's it. That's all, you know, we'll we'll get her going regardless. Uh, The question here today is going to be, what is the nature of our reality? What are humans truly capable of and how can we explore this? Now, these are questions I've been asking myself ever since I was a kid. And I'm sure many of us have really been been trying to explore this and, and you know answer these questions in some way, shape, or form. I've personally explored you know these types of questions with my friends, you know, through my own experiences, looking at ancient traditions, uh, even diving into a lot of the science. A lot of the emerging consciousness science uh, has been a lot of fun. And um, speaking of that, today my guest is Adam Curry. Now he's an inventor and a tech entrepreneur, but most exciting to me. He's a brilliant mind in the space of consciousness science, which is, you know, what we're going to talk about a lot here. Now, in this episode, we're going to discuss consciousness and the nature of our reality. We'll also explore the placebo effect and what might be driving it within each of us, as well as we're going to discuss the uh, prime states of being within ourselves necessary to really explore our deeper potential and kind of how we can know when we're sort of tapping into those states. I have to say off the top, there was a bit of a glitch in the beginning of this episode when we were recording it. We did lose a few minutes, but you'll pick up on a good spot as we get going here. So without further ado, my friends, here is my conversation with Adam Curry. Well, it's almost like when we're looking at COVID right now, and it's like you have, you know, two realities sometimes that are, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of overlap, um, but sometimes it just feels like the interpretations of, of what's going on can be so different and so wild and so vast <laughs> that it's like you wonder how we're sharing space. But um, in that sense, the polarization just seems to be to be getting so, so vast and so wide that it it's a question of how are we almost ever going to come together and agree on something ever again? Um, unless, of course, there's that sort of evolutionary pressure like we were talking about the tailwind of, of evolutionary consciousness, um, that sort of follows a moment of, of such chaos. Yeah. Well, you know, there's something about this reality that seems to be a place where dualities emerge and then like recombine. Mm -hmm. And that recombination is some sort of like divine moment or super important moment, either for us personally or for us, you know, writ large. It's all over our our archetypes, right? Shiva and Shakti and left and right brain hemispheres. I mean, all these like dualities kind of seeking. And so it could be that, you know, the there's a bigger thing going on here with the, the split realities. Yeah. Well, let's let's go into something that, you know, I think a lot of people when they think about consciousness affecting their reality to some extent, I mean, the placebo effect is something that, you know, we, for example, we see this a lot in, in medicine, right? Uh, oh, we need to run a randomized controlled trial um, that's placebo controlled. So we're literally controlling for the effect of someone's belief, someone's, you know, faith in something, so to speak. Um, why don't we unpack that a little bit and kind of get into, you know, why the placebo effect might work for certain instances, and I can give you some examples and, and perhaps not others. Um, but I guess lay it out from a standpoint of like, what's the placebo effect uh, for the audience? Placebo effect, 
basically is um, <clears throat> the classic example is the sugar pill. So you give somebody a an innocuous pill that's not the drug if they're in a, if they're in like a clinical trial or something, and you tell them it is, but you know that it isn't. And for a significant number of those people, they actually uh, take on certain they, they, in self-reporting they report certain effects that shouldn't be there just because they had a sugar pill. There's also the nocebo effect where you give somebody the drug and you tell them that it's a placebo or a sugar pill, and um, <laughs> and they have no effect. They, they self-report no effect. Uh, and so this is such a well-established effect that it's it's really the the a baseline that modern science has to exceed in order to show efficacy beyond the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not hypothetical. Like this is baked into the way that pharmaceutical research is conducted. Yeah. How drugs are developed in general. And would you like, so when you're breaking down, for example, the placebo effect, when you're looking at something medical, right. And let's say they're doing a drug trial for, you know, something like people with headaches, right. And, and, you know, you you give someone a medication and some people a placebo, and obviously this is a, you know, sort of a self-limiting type of illness that's going to wean itself out over the course of time anyway. And a headache doesn't have like a certain, okay, well, it's, it's always got to last X amount of time. And sometimes when we feel we're taking a drug, we can get calm, get into a relaxed state. We can, you know, have our bodies, you know, kind of go into more of even a coherent state, better heart rate availability, so on and so forth. Um, and the nervous system shifts slightly such that we actually bring about a bit of a healing um, state of being, if you will, in our body. Now, how do we pull apart the potential that placebo, i.e. the belief that I've done something, is nothing more than just a better state of body, a more regulated nervous system versus something that's really kind of happening more deeply um, in our consciousness that isn't necessarily just physical? Yeah, that's the question. Is it just self-reporting, uh, or is it you know psychological, or is it that there's actually a consciousness-driven effect, physical effect in the body? Yeah, based on the placebo. So my perspective is it's the latter. It's soundly the latter. Maybe it's both, but it's definitely at least also includes uh, a real physical psychokinetic phenomena happening here. Yeah. Um, and so the way you would do that is you would devise a you would devise one of those base layer really good um, uh, mind-matter interaction or psychokinesis experiments where belief was a variable. Uh, And so I've done this. Um, Actually, you can see it all the time. You can see it happening all the time in consciousness research stuff. So... Well, I could talk about experiments and outcomes, but here's a fun story instead. Uh, back when I was, uh, we were li- I was in the East Coast, uh, building random number generator stuff with uh, the uh, Princeton lab, there was a high school teacher that reached out to us. And he ran the gifted and talented program in this like inner city school in the Bronx. And he thought that what we were doing with the random number generator stuff was really cool and asked if we could put together a 
um, a uh, like two hour session teaching his high school kids about uh, statistics and you know how to do science and random number generator stuff. So we thought that'd be great. <clears throat> so we brought some of these random number generator devices uh, to the classroom. The classroom had about a hundred kids. So we divided the, them up into tables of like 10 groups of 10. And in the center of each table was uh, a random number generator connected to a computer where you could see the output, you know, going up or down. And we also had these, that we called the mind lamps, but they were glowing lights and they would change a color and the color that it would change to was controlled by the random number generator so that you would just use your consciousness to either make the graph on the computer screen go up or to make the color on the lamp, you know, turn turn uh, to green or to blue, whatever you decided, right? And <clears throat> so we set this up and the kids came in and they're really excited because it's like not a normal school day. It's like, this is, this is play, right? And <clears throat> the kids crucially didn't have any reason to believe that this consciousness stuff was like not possible, you know. Uh, they assumed that it was because, you know, here are these, uh, the teacher and the scientist guys have come and they're showing them how to do this stuff. So they believe that this stuff is completely possible. There's no reason to think that it is impossible. And <clears throat> Joe, these kids had unbelievable results, like the best results I've seen in my entire life of, you know, 20 years of like doing this type of stuff. Um, they were just, they were, you know, they were getting effect sizes, uh, like a hundred thousand to one, you know, Z scores of three and four and, um, consistently, uh, which is for this research, it's really, really good. Right. Um, very, very strong effects. And, um, sometimes like one of the kids, like the, there was a task, you know, turn this lamp from white to blue and they, you know, they could get green and they could decide, okay, now I want to turn it red and they would turn it red and yellow. I want to turn it yellow, but they were having a hard time with blue. So what they would do is they would just raise their hand and to signal like one of the adults to come over and help them. So, uh, you know, they'd raise their hand and I'd go over and they'd say, Oh, like Mr. Curry, I can't get, um, I can't get blue. Can you help me? And I'm like, okay, okay, I'll do it with you this time. So I wouldn't do anything and they would get it. Like the, you know, the light, the light would turn blue. And it's not because I was actually helping them or there's anything special about me. Not at all. It's that in their mind, the adults will help you. Like, um, it's sort of this belief system about the adults helping you driving this, uh, very significant physical effect in, in the, out, out there in the world, you know, it's not a psychological thing or self-reporting, but it's, it's, it's the real deal. Yeah. Um, same thing with the lines on the graph. So, so this here is like, you're, you're saying you're getting out of this sort of medical clinical trial, self-reporting type stuff where people can have their own interpretations and own perspectives of what's going on. And you're getting into something that can be visibly verified by a room of people. Um, and you're, you're sort of studying things that way. And you're saying that, um, from what you found, um, specifically with these kids, you saw huge effects of what we might call, you know, sort of placebo, you know, the, the belief that, 
we can do this that has a physical effect on our reality. Um, that's kind of the summary of that experiment. Now I would ask when you sort of extend it out into other groups you've worked with, like how often did you see it not work or not have statistically significant effects? Well, in general, if you move it into a population that has reason to doubt, i.e. not believe that these things are real, then you'd get a general decrease in overall effect size. Yeah. And and then and, and I'm assuming in some cases just no significance at all other than chance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> absolutely. Uh, you know, there, there's a, a bit of work that's been done looking at the, you know, correlating the belief systems of people to their ability to affect physical devices or perform at consciousness research stuff. And it's there, but it's it's not so cookie cutter as you might expect. Oh, this person believes it's possible, therefore they get good results. This person believes it's impossible, therefore they get nothing. You know, if it were as simple as that, that would be that would be nice, but yeah. it's it's really not that way. It's never that simple. Yeah, well, there's there's plenty of people that really believe in this stuff and and can get no effect whatsoever. Well, you know, here's an important point. I think that there's probably different levels of belief. Mm -hmm. There's conscious belief and subconscious belief, meaning a person might really believe in X, Y, Z, but deep down, do, do they? they? Yeah. And it's that deep down, do you, that is really the driver of this consciousness research stuff. You know, there's so much said about the power of intention, the power of intention. Okay. Yes. Are we talking conscious intention or subconscious intention? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's the subconscious intention that is, at least for most people, it tends to be the real driver. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a tricky one because how do you measure what is believed in the subconscious, right? Um, how can somebody know? And, and then that, it, it's like there's almost a, there's almost an insidious side to that sometimes because it's like you could always say, Oh well, you know you're not manifesting money based on the program that I that I taught you uh, that you bought for a thousand dollars, you know, uh, because you're just you're, it's not in your subconscious enough. You're just you're just not there, right? And and that, that story can go on forever, and that's one of the that's one of the tricky parts to um, this because I think people many skeptics have looked at you know the work of, of various people um, out there, prominent, not so prominent. Um, and pick on it so much because so much of what they're selling for their courses or for whatever it is they're doing often points to, you know, hey, you're just going to manifest all this wealth or you're going to manifest the exact life of, of your dreams. And, and, and because of that, this research is taken a little less seriously as well. Um, you know, because I've, I've heard many critiques of sort of the, uh, the placebo effect and it, and it being sort of passed off as nothing more than, well, it only works on very, very minor self-terminating illnesses. It does not work on anything serious. Yet I know stories of people who have had, you know, verifiable diagnosed cancer said, no, I don't. And literally within months, they have no cancer and they've done nothing. They've just, they've, you know, and I've spoken with oncologists who've seen a handful of patients over the course of their 20, 25 years. Um, who've taken that approach and it worked. So the question is, how did it work for them? Right. Um, and what is, what can medical science say about this? So what do you think in terms of the driving factor of that kind of thing? You think it's, you think it's subconscious more so 
So <clears throat> sometimes, yeah, I still think it's subconscious, but there's, there's, there's moments or times in our life for just special people where the conscious and the subconscious intentions are congruent. Right, so um, that person that says, no, I'm going to survive intentionally, deep down they probably actually mean it. Yeah. Right? Now this is, again, another simplified way of looking at it, but it's, it's a useful heuristic you know, to think about the extent to which our subconscious and conscious minds are, are really congruent. Now, I don't want to suggest either that our subconscious is impenetrable. Right? I don't, that's, that's a bit fatalistic to me too. Um, you know, if you, through things like meditation and, and self-awareness, I believe that we can surface a lot of this stuff and we can, we can actually work through it. Yeah. Um, you know, we are not prisoners of our subconscious mind, uh, not at all. You, you really just need to do the, a little bit every day of shining the light of your own awareness on what's going on inside of you. Um, what is it like to be you? And in doing that, this stuff gets resolved, right? And so... Um, I think that's, you know, you know what's interesting in, the, in this whole conversation is is Dean Radin has done some really interesting work showing that uh, meditators are vastly superior when it comes to um, certain uh, psych distant psychokinetic effects, mm. and that might be because meditators are just better at focusing their intention, yeah, because that's what they practice. But it could also be that there's a there's more of a congruence between conscious intention and uh, sort of desire and subconscious uh, intention and desire um, there's not a lot of battles that are being fought yeah. inside something like that yeah absolutely I, I definitely can think of a number of different you know I would say moments or periods in my life where you know, enough sitting with something, enough shining the light on something, you know, can reveal, oh, wow, do I actually really want that at the end of the day when you think you want something, right. for example? Um, or, you know, or the opposite, like, oh, you know, I just don't understand why this thing isn't working. And then all of a sudden you feel whatever it might be with somebody, people might call things blocks, right? You know, certain resistances that you might have. And, you you know you sort of work through that a little bit and suddenly it feels like the road is a little easier it's a little simpler um so there's something there with that um but it's not a you know it's not a black and white process it's definitely a, a little bit tricky to to move through um which sort of leads to you know that question of like we were talking before about you know whether or not people can get better um at psychokinesis and stuff like that um i.e is it is it a trained phenomenon can it be a trained phenomenon? Uh, what do you think? Yes, asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyone who's interested in this question of whether or not you could get better at this stuff should read a book called uh, One in a Million by Herb Mertz, uh, which is my friend and partner who spent several decades uh, working with a random number generator, recording all of his sessions uh, to see if he can make improvements? And the answer is yes, but. <laughs> uh, 
it is possible, but it's not quite like learning a skill like martial arts or something like that. Um, but here's here's really the way to look at it. <clears throat> if you, oops, my camera falls. If you do consciousness experiments enough for psychokinetic stuff a lot or remote viewing or any of that stuff, what you come to realize is that you're not actually affecting the device. You're not really affecting the thing that you're trying to influence. You're influencing yourself. Right? And the moments where it's worked is where you have a certain state inside. And the moments where it's not worked, you, you come to realize that's because you're not in a, in, in a right state. And to get from that, right, that wrong state to the right state is a process of affecting yourself. And that's all it is, right? And then whatever you've designated as the thermometer for your state, for example, it's the random number generator, some photon thing, or some scalar apparatus, or, you know, pick your thing, uh, will be, you know, will we'll show the phenomena to you. And so that's maybe another thing relates to what I was saying to your first question, uh, to what extent can we affect, you know, physical reality with our thoughts? And it's like, well, at a deep level, everything is unfolding in your own consciousness. And so it's the whole thing. And so I think when you kind of can move beyond the, the idea of affecting the device into becoming aware of your state, um, in, and everything that you're sensing um, at this moment, then you realize that it is all sort of consciousness and everything is possible. Uh, and it's a matter of, of um, expanding your own awareness internally. Mm -hmm. Something. Yeah, so what, what are some of the characteristics and qualities of, of a right state? Well, some people call it flow. So... Um, it tends to be, yeah, every, def, every definition for flow, uh, like creative flow or athletic flow or um, anything like that is the same state that produces good effects. Right. And is there, like I'm assuming things like heart rate variability, you know, that kind of stuff is oftentimes some of the, the um, measurable ways of determining whether or not the physical body is in that flow. Like for example, for people that might be exploring this stuff uh, for the first time and may, they may not um, be able to sense the quality of that state. Can they look at something that tells them they might be on the right track? Yeah. Uh, HRV, heart rate variability is, uh, you know, that that's correlated with the sense of uh, physical relaxation, like a, a calm alertness basically. Yeah. Um, and the, the mind, the ceaseless chatter of the mind is a bit more quiet and, you know, there's a little bit more presence, like engaged presence in a relaxed body. Um, uh, that correlates with HRV. There's, there's certain, um, EEG signatures as well that are attendant to that state. Hemispheric synchronization, uh, gamma, of course. Um, you know, patterns of gamma, that is. Yeah. 
and uh, a little bit of uh, awakened frontal lobe activity. Um, the back part of the brain being a little bit more quiet and the front part of the brain <clears throat> becoming more active. Yeah, there's definitely biological markers uh, for, for the flow state or for the state that uh, seem to produce stronger effects. But <clears throat> imagine that you could imagine that you could reach that state with a push of a button. For a little bit, you'd probably be really good at whatever you're trying to do. But then if that becomes your new baseline, then that's your new baseline, and you might actually be kind of stuck there at this flow state. It's certainly a level above where we are now, but there's always more, right? Yeah. Um, there's always more coherence, uh, greater states of consciousness, meaning <clears throat> that meaning itself is meaningfulness is tied up in all of this, right? And meaningfulness is not something that can be quantified. Mm -hmm. uh, it has, you know, you can describe it this way or that way, but it's by its nature a fleeting and subjective state. And um, it's something that it's it's a mystery how to even explain meaningfulness. You know, philosophy hasn't even begun to really grapple with, you know, answering this question. But, you know, you look at the brain as, as what it is, and it's, you know, four pounds of, of cells and you can understand everything there is about the physics and the chemistry of the brain and the signaling, except the fact that there's something called meaningfulness happening inside or around that you can't even like point at or see. There's like this interior quality that cannot be seen or quantified or really understood. Um, they mean like there's two sides of, of everything in the universe or something. And um, anyway, this, these types of states and these types of consciousness effects or whatever are very much driven by meaningfulness, right? It's like meaningfulness is this thing that can kind of push beyond the boundaries of whatever kind of level of reality you're in. Mm -hmm. Just a quick moment before we get back to our conversation. If you want to support this podcast and all the work we do here at the Pulse and Collective Evolution, consider becoming a member of our Explorer Lounge. As a member, you get access to exclusive video content. You can watch all of these episodes ad-free, and you get access to our private social network where you can discuss and learn about many topics with a like-minded community of changemakers. It's truly an incredible place to be, not just for the benefits that you get, but you're directly supporting our dedicated team here at Collective Evolution and The Pulse. Visit explorelounge.one, that's dot O-N-E, to learn more. All right, let's get back to the show. Hmm. So I want to I wheel back for a second. I mean, I almost I almost want to play with meaning a little bit here, but... I, I kind of am tempted to wheel back to the um, to the concept of you know can you train you know PK can can you train it and <clears throat> you know another another question could be I mean you know you know of the uh, you know a lot of the remote viewing programs that went on um, you know within the U.S. government and stuff like that and I mean these were these were highly funded you know extremely well managed um, you know some incredible people involved obviously you had um, you know, people like Ingo Swan, for example, who were exceptional, like some of the best remote viewers, if not the best remote viewer on record. Um, <clears throat> I mean, records that we at least have access to, maybe there's, I'm sure there's better ones out there, but, um, you know, but within these programs, they were probably training people and, and teaching people things. And so, you know, the question became, or could become like, you know, what are people training? at the end of the day to become better at this skill. 
Yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay, so well, let's take remote viewing. Um, yes, it can be trained. Yes, people can improve. Um, there are some people that, for whatever reason, tend to be naturally, like they're naturals. Yeah. They're naturally better. Um, I think it's an ability that every living creature has. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, it's with the, the remote viewing thing. Just, just one sec real quick. I just wanted to, to just throw out there so that people who might be listening that aren't sure what remote viewing is, um, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, essentially it would be being able to review, a, 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 a sorry, view a location and some of its qualities, um, for example, uh, while you're not there. So it's, it's the, you know, the non-local viewing of, of, it could be a coordinate that you're given. It could be something that's inside an envelope. It could be, you know, something that somebody is doing in their home, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that sounds crazy, but, um, that was actually the, the, the experiment that I did, um, with the person on the phone. But, um, but yeah, just for definition. And if you want to add to that, by all means, go for it. But, uh, yeah, that's right. So, uh, a classic example is the U.S. government is interested in the location of a Soviet spy yes. plane. And so they have this team of remote viewers who are like trained psychics, I guess, and um, trained at describing things that they don't wouldn't necessarily know anything about conventionally. And so they, uh, you know, they give them this task, describe the location of this object. And, you know, the, the people with pen and paper will start, you know, uh, writing down line, writing down words that come to them, impressions. Eventually, uh, they'll start drawing what they see, and they might draw, you know, some trees and some snow and a lake nearby. And they might draw, you know, uh, a couple of people. And it turns out that there is this crashed Soviet spy plane that landed, you know, in the snowy mountains next to this lake. And um, so that's the idea kind of behind remote viewing. And the army uh, tried a number of different things. They tried not, I mean, Ingo was a as an artist and a natural psychic uh, who was helping uh, Hal and Russ at SRI to develop a protocol that could teach this to anybody. Mm -hmm. And so the, the important thing about remote viewing is that it was always supposed to be something that you, a protocol that you could teach anyone, yeah. right? Um, and so the, I mean, the ultimate the reason behind there being a remote viewing program was to train and get yeah. better at it. Right? And they, they wanted something that was robust enough that it could be used by a soldier in yeah. a field. Yeah. Like that kind of thing, which is not the optimal, um, set and setting, uh, for, something you like know, that. um, intuitive impressions yeah. let's say yeah. yeah and i mean for those that might be holding a little bit of doubt about how rigorous the the testing has been on this i believe it's a uh, jessica utz um I forget her title she's a, a statistician and uh i believe a scientist of some of some uh sort but um she's kind of i her quote always sticks in my mind <clears throat> you know the gist of it at least which is essentially that you know there's been more rigor put on remote viewing in terms of scientific uh uh, study than so many things we accept today and and statistically it's it's like absolutely like verifiable that you know this works and people can do it you know on a consistent basis across the board this isn't one of those like sort of um 
you know, types of studies where, you know, people made fit what they wanted to make fit. I mean, it's, uh, it's very rigorously studied and, uh, it works. That's right. Yeah. I mean, uh, they had to prove to congressmen who were overseeing the program that, uh, it was worth getting their funding again and again, <laughs> which they did. Um, so, you know, back to your question about training and can you get better? So yes, remote viewing was designed to be trainable and, um, you know, the guys in the program, their job was to constantly do remote viewing and practice and, and to try to get better so that when it was go time, uh, they were at the top of their game, you know, just like any other soldier. Um, so then what are you training, right? Well, you know, you could ask different instructors. Some instructors say that you're becoming so natural at the, at the, the process of remote viewing, you know, which is, you know, you start off, um, writing down your initial impressions, um, separating impressions from your mind's attempt to name them. Mm. Right. And that itself takes practice, um, uh, you know, which is understanding, like call it the psychic signal from your, your analysis of what you think it is. For example, like let's say that your your target that you're remote viewing, you don't know what it is, but it's actually um, it's a red apple, and so you you write down you know uh, red shiny. These are honest, accurate impressions, but your mind says, "I know what it is. It's a fire truck," <laughs> right? And it's like, "No, it's not a fire truck. It's a it is red and shiny, but it's not a fire truck." And so that takes practice, mm -hmm. the ability to kind of separate adjectives and, and descriptive qualities that come to you from, you know, the incessant mind who's always trying to like put stuff in a box yeah. and name them. So you're, you're learning to get better at that. You're learning the process. Um, you, you might be learning to work under a deadline or under stress. You know, this is real world stuff. Um, but then I think what you're also learning to do is you're getting better by showing yourself that it's possible. Yeah. You might think that it's possible, but there's a phrase in this, the self-improvement world called proof, not mm -hmm. promises. Our brain likes proof, yeah. not promises. So, you know, words are cheap, um, but if you show yourself that you can do something, right? Well, now you've really anchored in the belief that this yeah. is possible, right? And you've started to develop, you've started to also get feedback on what subjective state it is that you were in when you were doing a good job. Okay. And that's also important, um, for, you know, as an internal heuristic to know when, you know, you think your work is good or not. Yeah. Um, you know, Lynn Buchanan, who's one of the trainers, I think he would agree with everything. He would also maybe add that <clears throat> in doing this type of work, there's a, a more subtle thing that happens, which is that your aperture, your sort of, um, the, let's see, the aperture to the field, I, I don't know how to put it, but your, um, maybe it's just the, the, your ability to hold a stable image mm. in your mind and to receive that image in the first place that expands right. and improves, right? 
And that's probably maybe the close, when you think about training and getting better at this stuff, that's probably what most people think of. And, and I think that that probably does improve. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause, um, you know, I think with a lot of this stuff, um, I, I think in my own life, and I mean, that's probably the easiest thing for me to draw upon is like the times where I've had, let's say the greatest, uh, connection to synchronicity, the greatest, uh, well, let's say observation of synchronicity, uh, un- undeniable stuff. Um, or the times where I felt very apt in my ability to remote view or to have a really strong intuition that was almost verifiable within, you know, seconds or minutes, or even sometimes, you know, in that same day, if it was a little bit later on, most of it came down to going back to that right state of being. What's that, what's that right state of my body? Right. And so it's, it's this idea of, <clears throat> am I there consistently? And then I'm not saying necessarily you're in pure flow, but you know, what is my average heart rate variability, for example, throughout that day versus a day where in a week in a, in a month period where I'm stressed out a lot more and I've, I've not made as much time for practice. And, you know, so going back to, to aperture, you know, you're, 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 you're almost, the more you are in that right state, the more you're, you're tuning in on a regular basis into this state of being, it, it seems like the wider the possibility of your world gets. And it almost like aspects of this, you know, this non-material, whatever, whatever the ability might be that you're playing with, um, even if it's something as simple as gut instinct and intuition and not having your mind chatter nonstop, doubting it constantly, it, it, it becomes clearer. It becomes, you know, um, more there. And, uh, I think at the end of the day, so much of this comes back to that, you know, are you, are you training that right state? Are you practicing being in that right state on a regular basis? Uh, Julia Mossbridge recently completed some interesting work about this very question mm. and remote viewing. And, you know, Julia is interested, she's a neuroscientist who also does consciousness research uh, along these lines. Uh, she's, I think she's at UCSD now. Anyway, um, she's interested in love and she's done really cool futuristic work on, on love, yeah. right? And <clears throat> she had a number of remote viewers do a conventional remote viewing session and then she asked them to uh she she took them through a practice where they um developed or let's say cultivated unconditional love in their hearts Hmm. and held it there you know this is like a guided meditation thing and then had them do remote viewing and she's found that this is actually very effective oh, yeah. at, um, you know, getting the right kind. And I think it's probably working on a number of levels. There's the HRV level and there's the, you know, the calming of the body, for example. Um, and that's just what we know. I mean, there's, there's probably a lot more going on there when it comes to, you know, just what love is. Yeah. Um, it's, helping establish our connection, you know, beyond ourselves. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost, uh, 
wonder if it's almost like um, improving the reception of, of the antenna that is the electromagnetic field of your of your body and or you know the electromagnetic fields you're picking up on and it's almost fascinating to wonder what you know the field which which is essentially you know to say the all of the all of the space around us that that contains all of this matter which at the end of the day is all just potential you know um this is this is wild to think but it's almost like what is the 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 structure of that what is the um what are the, the qualities? We're, we're, I'm trying to think about this in a material way. You know, like that's what's happening in my mind right now. I'm going, well, you know, if you looked at it like a server system that, you know, held all this data and databases everywhere. And then when you tapped into that database, it would serve you the information. But who says it has to be that way? <laughs> I'm saying like, who says that that remote location has to be that you are tuning into that distance as opposed to, it's right in front of you and because that information is actually just right it's right here in fact it is you you know um, it is you and that's yeah. the you know that's the part that becomes so fascinating about exploring this stuff something that's kind of interesting is uh, there have been attempts to measure the electrical field of the body and of the heart as you move away from the body mm. And it seems to radiate out to about, in a measurable way, to about three feet on either side of us. So if you were six feet apart from somebody, you would not be connected to them at all. And I just thought that's kind of interesting, There's the ultimate conspiracy right there. You know what, though? Um, I wouldn't put that past as something to not hold as a possibility. And I think we all know what we're referring to here. But um, even if you were to look at it as nothing more than, you know, how a game being played here on Earth was was giving the participants an opportunity to really felt, feel what it was like to be disconnected in literally almost every way, shape, or form, with the exception of, you know, being on your computer or the odd interaction that you might come into. Um, I think we experienced what disconnection was uh, in such an extreme way. And um, think of all that can be learned from that. I mean, a, a lot of people... Uh, changed their perspectives, their outlooks on life during COVID. And, you know, I get it. I get it that what I'm about to say is is weird um, in a lot of ways, but there's a gift in that, you know, to an extent. Um, you know, take it or leave it. But, um, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Um, I know we're getting close to time here. Um, I did want to kind of, touch a little bit on um, it's almost like a summary in a sense um, which is to say everything we just discussed you know there's there's almost a fear at times out there that um, what does it mean to be a custodian of your consciousness what does it mean to be a custodian of your right state um, if I'm engaging with something that's going on in the world, like a discussion of, 
you know, some of the stuff that played out over the last two years with COVID and, um, and how some of that is, is not the prettiest stuff that in some way by engaging with it, I'm, I'm actually reinforcing it because I'm looking at that and my consciousness is focused on that. How does, how does that play in to this, uh, to a lot of what we've discussed here? Well, if you have felt over the past couple of years a, a kind of sadness or depression or uh, a lack of connection, then what it's telling you is that that's important for your own well-being. And it needs to be maintained. So, um, you know, I look at it personally as... Well, in my own weird way, I take like a lot of responsibility for what's happened in the world in the sense that, um, you know, in my meditations, I'll sort of, sometimes I wonder if, if like this has happened because we've allowed ourselves uh, to have that human connection severed somehow, or we've like, we've shut off parts of our own heart, mm-hmm. maybe. And as a result, uh, you know, we've we've had this epic thing happen where it's just really pulled us apart. Um, and it's like your point was that you can see it as really bad, or you can see it as feedback. You know, this is how you, Adam, have, and everyone else have let yourself go. <laughs> uh, something like that, anyway. Um, and uh, not to be critical too much of ourselves, but you know, I think that the highest way to look at this, what's happened, is is feedback, uh, feedback about what's important, right? And <clears throat> so, you know, how do we dig ourselves out of this? Well, I think one way to do it is to dig deeper into ourselves and um, to reconnect with that. Uh, to reconnect with the the love, I guess, that exists inside of us, to connect with the people around us, and to understand from all of this how important that connection is, right? Um, and maybe that was like the point of point of it all. Hmm. And how would you respond? What do you well, think? Well, I, I want to ask a quick question. Um, how would you respond? Because okay. I mean, I've I've I would almost lay out, honestly, a very similar explanation, to be quite honest. I, I, I also would bring in this caveat of when you're in that right state that, that can be achieved through you know, questioning, where have I let myself go? How can I sort of get to that right state, if you will? And then now what, what action do I want to take from that right state to you know, sort of right this ship, if you will, if we want to judge it as, as being wrong? <laughs> But how do we write this ship of what appears to be a, you know, very much a, you know, an authoritarian world that's unfolding before our eyes, right? Um, that's kind of how I look at things. I, I look at it from a standpoint of, of the stuff happens simultaneously. There's a transformational uh, pull that, that 
you know, we're asked to follow and we, we follow that. And then from a new state of being, a new state of consciousness, uh, hopefully with many of us in a collective operating from that place, well, how do we want to act now? How do we want to look now? And if our current situation is this, what actions do we need to take now that also builds the world that we want to see? It doesn't just seek to destroy the one that we, we have now per se, but it says, how do we transition to the world we know is possible based on what we're tuning into, um, given the state of the world now? So that's kind of what I would sort of throw on there. But the question is, because um, when I would say stuff like that, people would come back to me and go, nah, you know what? This is a matter of, you know, we don't have enough men being men out there taking up arms and, and going and fighting and taking back our world that, you know, we need like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And if we're all just sitting here, you know, trying to worry about love, trying to worry about, you know, our hearts, um, you know, then we're not going to get anywhere. And next thing you know, we'll all be in, you know, a terrible situation. And I get that feeling. Um, I do. Uh, I'm curious how you would respond to that. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, I I wonder about that a lot myself. <laughs> well, I got yeah. a gun right here. I mean, I you know, I just myself. no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 uh, well, if, if it is some sort of like video game or um, like virtual reality kind of thing, maybe you win that way, but you could look at like who knows if history is even real if we live in a virtual reality but as so much of this cycle yeah. of this happening that do you want to be you know is it just that the cycle is going to continue happened before it's happening now will continue to happen you know this is the sort of thomas jefferson jefferson um uh, picture of um the price of a of liberty is eternal vigilance you know uh, our founders in the states anyway felt that that's that was the answer yeah. it's eternal vigilance it's it's consistent fighting in this cycle and it makes perfect sense on one level but you know you and i are are people that want to think about yes. breaking cycles <laughs> and you know that's the good guy bad guy cycle is uh is a cycle um, or like the, the tyrant populism cycle yeah. is the cycle. And I, I, I just don't really think that it's going to be broken with, with violence and, and revolution. Um, <clears throat> there's definitely, I mean, the world is going to be more and more yeah. chaotic. Right. And so there's, to some extent, this this stuff is is just going to happen. You know, you you can even see it happening in, in the other world. But I don't know. I like I. I think that there are like sort of. Yeah, I don't know. I I wonder yeah. about this a lot too. Um, for me, you know, I. It, it's it's important to really believe or to see the possibilities of peaceful resolutions and like a peaceful world and to reframe, maybe, maybe choose the bubble reality you're living in where there are two different like perspectives on the same set of phenomena. And like one is like one bubble reality is that, um, you know, it's really, uh, tyrannical and the, 
the peace and order that we lived in is breaking down and um, everything's chaotic and it's we're, we're all going to like yeah. things crashing. <laughs> and another way to look at it is um, is the 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 world that we're going into is so bright and beautiful and is punctuated by new technologies and fantastic new uh, ways of thinking and being. And it's, it's so out there in an awesome way that it's rather at odds with the current state. And we're all stakeholders of the world as it is. Like, let's be clear about that. We all have, at some level, we're big stakeholders. Um, and so, you know, we have to it's important for each of us to permit ourselves uh, to allow ourselves uh, to live in that world and for that world to unfold um, and to see how everything that's happening is a necessary process uh, for us to get there. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I'm relating to it. You're killing me here because I know we're at time. And, uh, you know, you're saying some things that's making me want to dig deeper, but, um, we'll cut her and, uh, we'll just have to do it again sometime. Um, but that's it. That's all. I mean, that was well said. And I think the only thing we can kind of go back to is like something you mentioned earlier, I believe, which was, you know, almost like, is there that, that little light of intuition somewhere that feeling somewhere within you that says you know what maybe it is time to break the cycle and and if you can sit with that light and let that grow and let it get bright enough to see what it might be telling you to do what it might be telling you to how how maybe to act or to even something to look into or whatever it might be um can you sit with that little light and and see what happens if you let it grow um that's mm. that's that's all, that's all that's all I would say to add to that. You know, maybe it's like um, it's important for each of us to follow the signs and the clues and the synchronicities uh, to move through this period of transition, uh, you know, with with grace. And, uh, you know, the whole world will be what the whole world is, but um, I I think as, like, super empathetic people, we see that our, we inevitably see that our fates are tied in with the fate of the whole world, right? Uh, Because we care about, you know, people and the the planet. Um, But it's important to also you know, understand that it is our responsibility, but mm-hmm. it's not. Well, that's not the right way to put it. It goes like, back um, to the martyrism. Yeah, exactly. Like there, there could be things happening that are just mm-hmm. way bigger than us. Um, and um, I think what you're saying is maybe like practical yeah. instructions for, for us is that look there's there's a lot of chaos happening and a lot of randomness but when things are kind of random and up in the air that's an opportunity for like a lot yep. of signal 
and to re to realign your own personal self and your own personal like reality, if you will, um, in some place that is you know even better than where you are and that's really good for you yep. and that's like a safe place. And you know, if you listen carefully to what's inside of you, you follow your heart, you do all those things, then there will be circumstances and synchronicities that will get you through this and will position you where exactly where you need to be and doing what you need to do for your own good and for like the highest good of the whole thing. And too much focus on the well-being of, well, too much focus on what's going to happen to the whole world and everything is like, yeah, that's heavy, man. Yeah. <laughs> like that's really heavy. And it's also impossible to, to, comp to, to really fully comprehend in a way that can make you really do something about it that you know for sure with 100% yeah. is the right answer. Um, and that maybe there's like this actually, yeah, maybe you don't have to be like the martyr who dies on the cross. Um, <laughs> right. Cause like, yeah, I feel you. I feel you. And yeah, the idea of trying to wrap your mind around you know, the totality of where everything's going and have some sense of certainty to it is, is absolutely impossible. Um, and I know a lot of people are going through that right now. Like, you know, what do I do now? Where do, how do I, how do I set myself up? How do I sort of prepare? Cause they feel something. Um, you know, and that's something that, again, going back to some of the stuff we've chatted about, just kind of sitting with, um, but that's, that's, that's all, you know, appreciate this conversation. It was fun as always. Definitely. would love to have you back on sometime, but, uh, yeah. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was fun. Well, that's it. That's all. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, I want to thank the members of the Explorer Lounge who are helping us to continue doing this work. If you want to support this podcast and all of the work we do here at the Pulse and Collective Evolution, consider becoming a member of our Explorer Lounge. As a member, you get access to exclusive video content. You can watch all of these episodes ad-free, and you get access to our private social network where you can discuss and learn about many topics with a like-minded community of changemakers. It's truly an incredible place to be, not just for the benefits that you get, but you're directly supporting our dedicated team here at Collective Evolution and The Pulse. Visit explorelounge.one, that's dot O-N-E, to learn more. <laughs>